Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, braving the weather and joining us tonight. Uh, as some of you have been with us for the past in this, with this series, this is actually the sixth year in which we've been doing the Talking About Race series with our very good partner, the Enoch Pratt Library. We're very pleased to be here. Uh, just to introduce myself, I'm Diana Morris. I'm the director of Oakland Society Institute here in Baltimore. Um, we have actually very, very good programming this month. Uh, we have actually three talking about race events, and I hope you'll be able to join us for all of them. You'll be able to find information about those events on the poster that we have outside or on our website, which is osi-baltimore.org. Um, tonight's event uh, could not be more timely, and I must say we have some really wonderful people here to talk with us. But before I introduce our guests, I do want to thank uh, two people who have really helped to make this series possible, Vernon Reed and also uh, Sheila Murthy. Um, we are really committed uh, to this series because of the work that we do at the Open Society. Many of you know that we approach all of our work using a racial lens and focus particularly on mass incarceration, criminal and juvenile justice reform, drug addiction treatment, um, and education and youth development with a real eye for those kids who are being pushed out of school and obviously with our goal being of engaging them. And I'm happy to let you know that we have just selected, but not yet announced, the next class of community fellows. So that will bring us up to about 170 community fellows. So stay tuned for, for that announcement. So tonight we're going to have a chance uh, to talk about media bias and the black communities. Among the many things that the Baltimore uprising brought to the surface were frustrations about the way African Americans are covered in the press, clearly not for the first time. From the use of coded words like thugs to the decision to focus on spasms of violence and largely ignore the much larger and much more impactful peaceful protests. We saw this reflected in Baltimore this year, and I know you can probably think of many other examples. This is clearly not a new problem. The Kerner Commission, in fact, which looked at the root causes of the 1967 riots in urban America, saved some of its most severe criticism, in fact, for the media. Um, it, that report said, the press has too long basked in a white world looking out of it, if at all, with white men's eyes and white perspective. So our guests tonight are here to offer uh, some very important information about the context in which we are reading the press, receiving the press, and they're working. And they will help to unpack such issues as the role of journalists of color in newsrooms, the rise in citizen journalism and social media journalism, and also structural racism and corporate ownership in the media. In particular, we're going to hear from uh, Rashad Robinson, the director of uh, colorchange.org, and he's a prominent civil rights leader in the United States. I first got to know Rashad, in fact, when he was really combating the organization ALEC that had provided the model for the stand your ground kind of legislation, and the effectiveness that he had uh, was so, so impressive. So. There's many things that Rashad could be talking about uh, tonight with us, but we're so pleased to have him here and talking tonight, at least, um, about bias in the media. 
Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, Color of Change is the country's largest online civil rights organization with more than a million members in the United States. Its stated goal is to strengthen black Americans' political voice to empower its members, uh, black America and their allies, to make government more responsive to the concerns of black Americans, and to bring about positive, and social, positive political and social change for everyone. So if you're not a member, I would certainly recommend that you check it out. In fact, in 2015, Fast Company named Color of Change the sixth most innovative company in the world for, quote, creating a civil rights group for the 21st century. From 2010 through 2014, Rashad was selected as one of the Route 100, a list of emerging and influ influential African Americans under 45. He has appeared on many... Um, different kinds of media, NPR, MSNBC, and CNN. And his writings and op-eds have appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, Huffington Post. He's previously held leadership roles at GLAAD, The Right to Vote Campaign, and Fair Vote. Uh, we also are very pleased to have with us Stacy Patton. Uh, she's a journalist and an author who has worked at The Baltimore Sun, The Washington Post, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. She's also an adjunct professor in American history um, at American University. Uh, Stacy earned a bachelor's degree right here in Johns Hopkins University and went on to get her PhD in history from Rutgers. Her award-winning 2007 memoir, That Mean Old Yesterday, described her childhood within the foster care system and her subsequent success in journalism, which of course continues. Her recent Washington Post op-ed including one called Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists, and another accusing comedian Amy Schumer of racism, have sparked heated discussions about race and public discourse. And finally, our moderator we're happy to have with us is Joseph Torres, a Senior Exter External Affairs Director for Free Press, which advocates for free and open internet and works to curb runaway media consolidation protect press freedom, and ensure diverse voices are represented in our media. He is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, News for All the People, the epic story of race and the America media. So you can see we have just an incredible lineup. Now, uh, just a few logistics. As in the past, our guests will speak for about 45 minutes, but then we really will open this up so we can have a discussion. Uh, we do have a microphone over there. I urge you just to line up and use it so everyone can hear each other. Um, and finally, if you want to be notified of more events like this, I really hope that you will sign up at one of the sheets outside or simply go to our website, osi-baltimore.org. We would really ha be happy to include you in our events. So thank you again for being here, and we're off. Well, can you guys hear me? The mic's on? Yeah? Okay. Well, thanks for having us, and thanks for showing up on a, on a rainy day. This is a, a great place to actually have this conversation here in Baltimore, considering everything that was happening this past year. But I, I, let me start off by saying a few words, and I'm going to pass it on to uh, Stacey and Rashad uh, to make their opening, opening statements. But for me, personally, um, this issue is critically important. The media uh, plays a critical role in defining who we are. And, the, the, and it's hard to fight racial justice in society without a just media system, without a media system 
that is exposing injustice in our society. But too often throughout the history of media, the media has played a role in, in helping uh, uh, injustice to take place. It is hard to, uh, if, uh, whether it's slavery, whether it's the lynching, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's mass incarceration, it's hard for injustice, injustice in society to happen without a media system that gives support and cover for the unjust policies. Um, when it comes to race and coverage, uh, when it comes to the black community, the media has a long history, three centuries worth of history of covering the black community as a threat to society. Whether it's the Boston Newsletter, the first uh, continuous newspaper in the United States in 1706 that said that blacks were addicted to stealing a line, or whether it is to coverage of what's happening in Baltimore, uh, the, 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 this narrative has, really hasn't changed. Black people are a threat to society. Other people of color are as well. And why is that? How come that is? How, is it, how are we going to change this? Um, are, are we ho hopeful about this? Are we pessimistic? For starters, um, one of the reasons this happened is because um, people of color don't have, we don't own any of the media system. We own very few radio and TV stations. Uh, a few years ago, there was no black owners of full power television stations in our country. And it's hard uh, to change the narrative when other people are telling your stories and gatekeepers decide whether your voice is worthy of being heard or not. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, uh, um, and, and to me, I really want to hear from the panelists uh, like, and from the audience, too, um, not only how what you see the problem is today, but what, are there any bright spots, anything that gives you hope? Uh, we, have to, I mean, we have to be hopeful if we're actually here today and to discuss this, because this conversation, we've been having this conversation for a long time, but we continue to have it because we believe we can actually change things at times, right? So what are we hopeful for? Uh, and, but really, what can we define what the problem is right now? And, and why don't we start off with uh, Stacy? I have prepared marks, so I'm going to sure, stand. Sure, go for it. Thanks for coming out tonight. Can you hear me okay? Yes. yes? So I'm a journalist and a historian, and so I think that when we talk about media bias in black communities, we have to add some historical perspective to this enduring uh, problem. Um, I'm going to start off with a trigger alert that some of you may be um, upset by some of the things you might hear, so I have trigger alert. Um, the American mainstream media is working exactly the way it should. A racist society requires media bias. A racist society requires coverage of people of color that aligns and overlaps with broader racist sentiments and stereotypes. A racist society requires a news media that employs negative images of people of color to assure for white America um, that there's hope for them and the impossibility of success for the majority of black people. It's really quite simple. White people are normal and black people are failures. A racist society needs black bodies as demonstration projects to confirm the myths that far too many white Americans believe about their own superiority. The news media is yet another layer that colludes with the state, with law enforcement and other structures and forces in the service of ensuring white supremacy. 
A racist society requires stories about black pathology, black crime, black maladjustment, black family breakdown, black long-suffering, black people as a problem, rather than stories that cover the full gamut of journalistic beats and stories that present a full range of life experiences and interests to people of color rather than stories that humanize people of color, rather than stories where people of color are sources or authorities on things like social policy, education, health, science, and government planning. A racist society requires incessant reported statistics that measure black people's inability to gain progress on anything. When's the last time you picked up a newspaper or clicked on a story where black people were making strides beyond their white counterparts on anything. Those statistics act as proofs which feed a long historical discourse about how we are biologically wired or unfit for full citizenship rights. Those reported statistics allegedly prove how our benighted condition is a result of our own innate ability to perform rather than a result of serial forms of systemic racial devaluation. Statistics are simply quantified racialist theories that present white people as the standard measure of intelligence and all things normal and black people as the symbol of failure in pathology. Our otherness and inferiority has become embedded as a historical fact and still remains a habitual and taken-for-granted feature of our mainstream news coverage, which in turn shapes cultural attitudes, policing, and social policies. A racist society requires a news media that tries to convince us that the problems in black communities are not just part of a long, ongoing historical process that requires that we remain at the bottom of the social structure. A racist society requires media narratives that provide white America with an ego stroke at the expense of people of color. A racist society requires news analysis that perpetuates the notion of American exceptionalism and presents social problems such as chronic poverty and violence as unique to blackness while obfuscating the fact that those same problems and conditions affect wide and diverse swaths of people across the nation. And when you're a black journalist working in a white newsroom in a racist society, you must continually devise strategies to present the experiences of black people in their communities in a way that white gatekeepers can or care to process them. The stories you pitch to your editors must conform to the interests, desires, or tastes of white audiences. A racist news media will determine that non-episodic, everyday news coverage of people of color is simply a non-story. And if you are a conscious black person working in a white newsroom, talking to black America through white platforms presents yet another set of challenges. Meanwhile, Black victims of police violence are depicted as if they've emerged from some kind of terra incognita where dragons be, and the only thing that happens there, as far as many white people imagine, is that savage black people are inevitably murdered. And so they are demonized and blamed for their own deaths. Lack of diversity in newsrooms leads to replication of the same old narratives and the same privileging of the same voices at the expense of others. But this isn't new. American media outlets have been put on blast since 1947 when the Hutchins Commission on Freedom of the Press criticized the media's distortion of black people. 
The commission said, quote, it is no longer enough to report the fact. It is now necessary to report the truth about the fact. Then in 1968, the Kerner Commission criticized the lack of diversity in newsrooms and bias in coverage of communities of color. The commission report concluded that we are living in two nations, black, white, separate, and unequal. And it also devoted an entire chapter to the impact the media had on the nation's race relations. The report said, we believe that the media have thus far failed to report adequately on the causes and consequences of civil disorders and the underlying problems of race relations. It added, the media report and write from the standpoint of a white man's world, the ills of the ghetto, the difficulties of life there, the Negro's burning sense of grievance are seldom conveyed. The report said that the industry was shockingly backward for its failure to hire, train, and promote African Americans. At the same time, fewer than 5% of the newsroom jobs in the United States were held by African Americans. Today, despite the progress that's been made in hiring and coverage of African Americans and other so-called minorities, many critics say the Kerner Report findings continue to resonate today. In the late 60s, dozens of American cities became the sites of urban riots. As a result, African-American journalists employed by the black press finally found a door opening to mainstream media, with some of them being able to recall the specific riot that resulted in their hiring. Other members of other ethnic groups were hired in record numbers, slowly altering the complexion and ideals of American journalism. Flash forward to 2000. A Freedom Forum study found that while the newspaper industry had hired 550 journalists of color each year since 1994, 400 had annually left the business. More distressing were figures showing that 596 journalists of color came into the industry in the year 2000, but by year's end, 698 had left. Between 2001 and 2011, the number of African Americans in mainstream newsrooms plunged 34%. By 2015, 2014, the number of blacks working in newsrooms continued to drop far greater than experienced by any other group. That same year, racial unrest in Ferguson and Baltimore caught the nation off guard because the largely white media missed all the warning signs. So here we are a half century after the Kerner Report. We were still calling out the mainstream media for its biased coverage of black communities. Forgive my cynicism, but it is clear to me that our corporate media does not care, does not want to change, does not want to diversify their newsroom or their coverage because it would disrupt their agenda, which is to make money and to preserve the status quo. Imagine if residents of Ferguson or Baltimore were in the newsroom. Imagine if those trained in critical race theory or former activists were in the newsroom. The narratives would be severely challenged. Even still, those few of us that have been able to land positions in newsrooms often feel the heat in criticism and racist vitriol uh, from trolls online. White journalists are often seen as objective and celebrated when challenging political figures. They're not thrown out of the room or escorted out of a press conference like we saw uh, during one political figure's uh, uh, press conference a few weeks ago. White journalists like Brian Williams, Maureen Dowd, Mike Barnacle, and others can lie, plagiarize, make up stories, and still work in the industry. 
If you're a white journalist, plagiarism and fabrication are instances of exaggeration. But if you're black, they're viewed and punished as straight-up lies. If you're white, you've made a mistake, but a black journalist has actually committed fraud, and worse yet, you are a fraud. No black journalist would be able to get away with saying that something mysterious happened to their brain to cause confusion between what did and didn't actually happen during their reporting, as Brian Williams was able to do. No one claims that Brian Williams' misdeeds will harm the status of all white males in the newsroom. His skin color will never be cited as a reason behind the scandal or as a distinct problem of his unethical character. Because as we've seen, it's rare for established white males to lose their entire careers when they mess up due to a lapse in judgment. They always find redemption. They may get sidelined for a while, even find new jobs or promotions. So let's face it. White journalists don't have the pressure of breaking down barriers, lifting up their race, and proving their worth on modern high-tech plantations. If Brian Williams and those like him uh, trip up, the door won't close. But for black journalists, the door is barely open, and the slightest stumble will cause it to be locked and hermetically sealed for others for a very long time. And in our absence, the demonization and stereotypes continue as business as usual. This is what white supremacy looks like. It relies on the desire for white redemption and the different rules and standards applied to different races of journalists. The logic is that whites can find redemption because they are white, that whites are superior because they can be redeemed. If whiteness equals intelligence, morals, and authentic journalistic integrity, then Brian Williams cannot be a liar. He must be seen as someone who made a mistake with a brain under the influence of ambition. Now look at him, just the other day, covering the Pope's visit to America. How's that for redemption? The white media establishment gets to set the rules about ethics, decorum, and professionalism. Some folks would argue that the solution to this long, enduring historical problem is to keep pushing and calling out the media to diversify. But I think our challenge is to find alternative means to address media bias without going to those who are the gatekeepers and sources and beneficiaries of the bias. We should take our cue from many of the Black Lives Matter networks, which are not going to the state and asking it to change because the state is the very thing that keeps hurting us. After all, far too many news organizations practice what I like to call cosmetic diversity. They give the illusion of diversity and use it as evidence of exceptionality, which disarms criticism. Look at those two black reporters over there. Look at our, our diversity in our newsroom. Look at our progress. Meanwhile, their silence and refusal to protect their journalists of color from incessant attacks amounts to complicity with the larger racist structures. Their silence and complicity allows mainstream media to say, racism is over there something we cover out in the streets, but not in our newsroom, all in the service of maintaining the status quo, whether done implicitly or explicitly. The trolls are racist. Fox News is racist, but not our liberal newsroom. But the liberal media is often a trickster cousin of Fox. It is Fox by another name, a pig in lipstick, but it's still a pig. Or as one of my journalist friends likes to put it, the liberal media which practice, co practices cosmetic diversity is white supremacy in blackface, the mask that smiles and lies. I predict that if the mainstream media fails to diversify, given our de de rapid demographic shifts, then their outlets will die on the vine. 
They will die from irrelevance. So I'm putting my hope in a new generation of activists and journalists that is using the internet as a tool to chisel away the media's biased coverage of communities of colors. They are challenging the master narrative. They no longer have to rely on telling our stories through traditional means, whether it's a newspaper or mainstream TV. While I believe that the larger movement for black lives will place pressure on media to not ignore our stories, I'm actually excited to see some of the reverse migration of journalists of color to alternative media. And for one, I am for one looking forward to black America finally becoming the voice of black America. Thank you. doing? Good. So I want to talk a little bit about color of change and the work that we're doing um, specifically in media. I think, Stacy, you couldn't have set me up better in terms of really walking through the challenges that we currently see in our media landscape and the opportunity that it provides for us to sort of shift the landscape. I uh, grew up in this uh, town at the in eastern Long Island, sort of right at the, right at the end. It was um, the last exit on the expressway, and um, of 10 to 15% black population. So when you grow up in a town like that, you learn how to organize. You learn how to organize to get someone on the, the city council. You learn how to get someone on the school board. You organize to get a black reporter reporting on issues in the local paper, and you're constantly organizing. And that organizing sometimes ends with voting or sometimes it begins with voting. I remember going into the voting booth with my grandfather and he would put me on his shoulders. For some folks in the room, they don't, may not know that they used to have these machines that you had to pull the lever. Um, and he would let me pull the lever and sometimes let me read the very long names um, on the ballot. There was a town, it was predominantly a strong Polish population, so the names were oftentimes long and didn't always follow the phonetic um, sort of tradition that I was learning in school. It wasn't until after my grandfather died that I found out that that time in the voting booth wasn't just about us voting together, wasn't just about our civic participation, it was that my grandfather couldn't read or write. It, was that, it wasn't that it was illegal for him to get an education. Growing up in Cumberland, Virginia, he went to work in the fields at about six years old and never got a formal education. It was that our culture didn't value him being educated. It was that there wasn't deeper value in our larger American context for him getting an education. So when I think about our work at Color of Change, it's not just about looking at the policies that shift the way that we live, but looking at the culture that we have to live inside of. The ability to be equal, to, to be heard, counted, invisible, regardless of whether we're privileged or vulnerable, majority or minority, or in favor or out of favor with those in power, relies on us not just changing policies, but changing culture. So how do we do that? Color of Change was founded in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So almost 10, uh, just a little over 10 years ago now. 
And our, our founders founded Color of Change with this idea that the civil rights movement needed an organization that used technology and used media and quickly mobilized people to action. Channeling people power and everyday people to force institutions and government to be accountable to the needs and concerns of black folks. With the idea that people of good faith of all races would want to stand up in moments of crisis. But not just translating and working in moments, but translating those moments into movements. We've seen the sort of emergence of technology and the changing landscape of media in these last 10 years. We've seen the way that we continue to fight to get our stories on the front page of the newspaper. But as Stacy talked about, we also have the opportunity to use the new technologies of our time, to trend on social media and use the new platforms that allow us to open up new territory. But in that, we have to be clear not to control, not to confuse cultural presence for cultural power. Oftentimes, over and over again, we see the presence of our issues, the awareness, the ideas that maybe we have black anchor people, maybe we have folks being talked about, talking about our stories in media as actually the work. Awareness we can never mistake as power. Over and over again, we see how our issues are distorted, our, our, um, our news is filtered through corporate bubbles and doesn't give us the power to actually change the narrative or build long-term change. So some of the campaign work that we're doing at Color of Change, which is really focused about translating the presence that we see in the world into power. And so backing up, a number of years ago when Glenn Beck went on TV and called President Obama a racist with a deep-seated hatred for white folks, Color of Change was about a 600,000-member organization at the time. We saw that as a moment, not just to call on Glenn Beck to stop or to try to protest out inside of Fox. There was really no power in that. These organizations had made a decision about what they were going to do. But there were corporations that were sponsoring the Glenn Beck show that every single day came to black folks and say, buy our products or use our services. So we organized a two-year campaign, a campaign that went after advertiser at advertiser and said that you can't support Glenn Beck by day and kind of come for our money at night. And corporation after corporation began to drop as we mobilized more and more members, moving to phone calls and pickets and shareholder meetings. Over 300 advertisers dropped the Glenn Beck show after three years of our campaign work. The last episode of the Glenn Beck show wasn't poorly rated, just like the months before. It was that Fox couldn't sell advertising. The advertisement that kept appearing over and over again was that company that you put gold in an envelope, you send it back in, and they send you back cash. It wasn't the Hondas, the Toyotas, and the McDonald's that actually kept Glenn Beck on the air. We've moved that work into running campaigns when, when Pat Buchanan released his new book and, and went on MSNBC and, and started talking about an end to white America. He was using coded language like President Obama is an ethnomasochist, and we had to look up ethnomasochists and could only find it on white supremacist websites. <laughs> we began and we launched a campaign there that ended Pat Buchanan's time on MSNBC. We did the same thing with Lou Dobbs, mobilizing everyday people and people power, all the while growing our membership, growing the power of everyday people that believed that they could stand up and push back against corporations, and hopefully along the process moving the line. 
There was a mix of cultural presence and a mix of cultural power. We had not transfer, translate, we have not changed the media landscape, but what we had done was build more power along the lines. As, as we built more campaigns, people quickly returned our phone calls. We were much able to move from an idea that something was a problem to getting folks to pull it down or stop. But over the course of the last couple of years, we've really stepped back to think about what is the, the next phase of this campaign work. As we've seen uprisings in Ferguson and, and Staten Island and Baltimore right here, and my organization has been on the ground in those places, mobilizing the power of our membership to push the Justice Department to get involved or to push for long-term systemic change in terms of our criminal justice system. We continue to see a media landscape that tells a story that, that is of black peoples as symbols. Not as real people, but as symbols. Symbols for what is wrong with this country. The questions that are oftentimes asked in our newsroom, because they are not diverse, are not, 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 the questions are, what is the problem with black people? Or maybe a little better, but not, but not much, is what are the problems in black communities? It allows journalists and it allows those in power to ask questions and talk about black communities as if they have nothing to do with black communities, if they have no relationship to black communities, if their decisions and their daily lives are not built around and we don't have a shared and common ground. So we've um, built some long-term research projects that I'm going to talk about um, a little bit on the panel. But some of the work that we've been also moving into is our work in Hollywood. And we've started to do long-term work in Hollywood. We've launched a Hollywood office in this last year, understanding that the work is not just about news media, but also about cultural media. And we've started pushing Hollywood around its depictions. We ran a campaign to force Fox to cancel the TV show Cops after 25 years, mobilizing 50,000 of our members, holding protests out in front of Fox. So you don't see on Saturday night, bad boys, bad boys, what you're going to do, because Color of Change members stood up and pushed back. And we're moving our work into more to reality TV programming and also into the crime procedures, those shows that every single day depict a hero law enforcement figure and a criminal black and brown man that tell us a story about the scientific infallibility of forensic evidence, which we over and over again find out to be flawed, and so many other problems in terms of how the, that type of news gives people an idea of who to be afraid of and who to trust. And so I'm looking forward to the rest of the panel, talking about some of the work, but most importantly, talking about what we do together to transform our media landscape the opportunity for us to organize, to build power, to hold those in power accountable and shift the landscape for how our stories are told. We've never been more powerful because of social media. There are some canaries in the minds in terms of the platforms that we use, but we have the power in this day to, be, to push back. And with a media environment that's shrinking, consolidating, and having to fight for their share, we have more powers ever as consumers to hold them accountable, to push back, and to create a new story about our lives, our families, and our communities. Thank you. Thanks, Rashad. Um, first, I want to say, are there any journalists in the audience just curious? Okay. You know, I would, um, I, I, Stacey, um, let's talk about Baltimore for a, a second, but I would think you agree with the statement. Um, you know, you and I, we know a lot of, all of us know a lot of journalists, right? And I think 
there are a lot of great journalists working in newsrooms across the country, whether they're a local newspaper, um, but it's the, it's the institution that's failing us, right? Um, and a lot of journalists go to, go to work every day and they're trying to do the right thing, but they're working in a media environment that's not allowing them to do the right thing or those that value their voice as much, um, looking at the bottom line. So just want to put that out, because I know um, when we talk about journalists, I have a lot of journalists that get rough with you, kind of like putting us all in the same bucket, but it's, there are a lot of, great, a lot of great journalists doing a lot of great things. Uh, but unfortunately, the institution uh, believe less and less in journalism these days. Um, I just want to say, before we get to talk about Baltimore, you know, I mentioned uh, Boston Newsletter where, you know, uh, first continues newspaper, blacks was addicted to stealing a line. So here is a, a Pew Research study of Pittsburgh media market that found that African-American males were present only rarely in stories since in 2011 involved in such topics as education, business, the economy, the environment, or the arts. Of the nearly 5,000 stories in the print and, and broadcast uh, stories that appeared in the, Boston, in, in, the, in the Pittsburgh media market in 2011, less than 4% featured an African-American male engaged in a subject other than crime and sports. So that's the environment in which the media is covering communities of color, and the black community in particular. In particular. So, Stacey, can we talk about Baltimore and how we have a media system that is historically, as you mentioned, uh, cover people of color, uh, cover the black community as a threat, and um, in order to support a racist country. Um, and how has this played out, like in, in your view, in Baltimore, but also in the other uprisings over this past year? Well, my first exposure to uh, media coverage of the black community here was when I worked for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, I was a Metro reporter while I was in college at, in Johns Hopkins. And, you know, I was 19 years old working in a newsroom. I thought, wow, I'm in a newsroom. I can't believe they pay me to write. So I, I didn't really have the kind of consciousness and, you know, understanding of history and how the media works uh, to really, uh, you know, scrutinize what was happening as a 19-year-old as kid. But, you know, I recall, you know, going out on homicide beats. Um, you know, sometimes we would go two, three times a day, Peter Herman and I, who's now at the Washington Post, and cover, you know, shooting victims. And, you know, these crimes would get a little blurb in, in the paper. There was, there was so much I wanted to know about this young per person's life. Well, you know, who, who was their family? Where did they come from? What were the circumstances that, that led to this, right. this tragedy? And so they were just statistics. And uh, sometimes I would go to editors and say, can, can we say a little bit more about this person? Right. And, you know, the, the feeling was, well, this is Baltimore. We have hundreds of homicides a year. We can't tell everybody's story. This is just a fact of life here. And um, so, you know, as I stayed in journalism a little bit longer, you know, working at The Sun another uh, year, I started to really ask deeper questions, and I started reading. And I read Jill Nelson's Volunteer Slavery, right. which was my first exposure to the inner workings of race in the news media. And I, I worked also with Pamela Newkirk at NYU, who wrote Within the Journalist Black, Within the Veil, Black Journalists, White Media. And I started learning about the Kerner Commission and, the, you know, black women working in a newsroom who got fired for their hairstyles and so on and so forth. And, um, and so I really started learning how to do media analysis, looking at, you know, I would come into the newsroom and pick up the paper and lay it down and say, okay, how many black people are, how many stories are about black people in the paper? Where are they placed? 
What kind of pictures are used? What kinds of stories? And it was the same thing. It was drugs. It was on the sports page. It was, you know, crime, but nothing deeper than that. And so then when, you know, black people command national media attention, it's usually for some riot or some huge, you know, turmoil, but nothing else beyond that. And so when I was 19, 20, 21 in the newsroom, I always tried to seek out, you know, interesting stories beyond just, you know, crime and bad things happening to, to, to black folks to sort of break up some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, you know, editors were not necessarily interested in that. But as far as, um, in which I can jump into, is as far as like the Freddie Gray case and the media's coverage of that and the media coverage of Eric Garner and Walter Scott and, uh, and all these, um, what, are you, what are the trends you see? What are the common themes you see in all this coverage? Mm -hmm. Well, for one, they're blamed for their deaths. You know, uh, we see the, we even saw this with Tamir Rice, you mm -hmm. know, a, a bringing out his parents and talking about their arrest records. Uh, you know, Eric Garner was selling Lucy's or he was too big. So if he had eaten a better diet, maybe he would have survived being choked out on the street. You know, um, so with Trayvon Martin, it's the same sort of thing, the same sort of demonization you know, uh, after these individuals die, we see, you know, perusing of Facebook pages to, you know, pluck out certain kinds of poses. So you see these young people mm -hmm. as menacing, which sparked, you know, if they gun me down as a response. Right. You know, you had young people say, which, which, which story are you guys going to tell? Uh, without Facebook we, and, and Instagram and all those sorts of things, we would have not seen that sort of counter narrative and pushback to the story. So those are some of the trends um, that we see. What did this person do that in their past that had nothing to do with the moment that they were killed that we can use to find an excuse for why they were killed? And Rashad, I know of, of color change, you know, particularly in the Walter Scott case in South Carolina, uh, you went after the paper for uh, just accepting the narrative of the police department at face value. And I think that's a critique we see in a lot of these uh, uh, shootings and, and deaths, uh, uh, police brutality cases where uh, newsrooms just take at face value uh, you know, the reports of the police department. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. We ran a campaign against them. We actually went after some of their national advertisers. We didn't have much luck with local South Carolina advertisers, but um, we did have some luck with some national advertisers and, and enforcing um, some shifts in behavior. Um, we see this over and over again in terms of the relationship. I mean, news is a business, first and foremost. And so the relationship between news and police officers and, and, um, and law enforcement in general that news needs in order to be first on a story, to get the most information. Over and over again, we're doing a lot of training of local news directors. And these are folks who generally have risen up a little bit so they inside the newsroom, so they're a little bit more honest about some of the challenges. And over and over again, we hear about the crime reporter dating a local police officer. We hear over and over again about how they take right off of the blotter the police blotter, exactly what the police said, and then put it on the news. I run a civil rights organization. No one ever takes what we say as fact. We are treated as a source, a source among many. And that's what police should be, as a source among many. 
Um, but we get over and over again things like this in local cities. How many times have you heard things? The suspect was a six foot, 180 pound black man. Now I'm five foot three, so it wasn't me, but it could have been many other black men in any other major city. You're not actually giving. Um, a description. You're not saying the person had a tattoo on their face. You're not saying anything that's a descriptor. What you're doing is you're just basically giving one more signal about who we should be afraid of. And so we're pushing you know, news agencies to say the police released a vague description and leave it at that to force police to do a better job of identifying and when they can identify to do a deeper dig so that we're not putting everyone in harm's way. But we see over and over again the way in which the relationship between law enforcement and news agencies is not a relationship of source um, and publication and news outlet where they're digging in, but it's a, it's a relationship of how can we be first? How can we lead with the, the deepest story, and how do we not um, mess up our relationship with local law enforcement? We had a problem where we're running a campaign against some of the police associations in Florida. They went into a local Wendy's and claimed that a young man behind the counter, a young black man, refused to serve them. The story came out that that's actually not what happened. They fired the kid, then Wendy's had to come back in and restate him. The local police department continued to protest even after it was all figured out through videotape that the kid never, never did anything wrong. We finally got a story in the Sun Sentinel. The editor, after it was posted for four hours, the editor then pulled the story down because he said he had never heard of our organization, not because it was wrong, but because he, like, the editor had gotten, had gotten got by the Fraternal Order of Police. So we have an ongoing challenge um, in terms of how do we even get news accuracy in these moments? How do we even get the real stories to be told? How even when we have video content in cases like Sandra Bland and others, do we actually have the story told accurately? And these are all ongoing problems of a news agency that has no accountability. The question is, though, is that local news in most cities could not survive without black people. In fact... <laughs> Black people over-index on local news in most major cities in the country. It is a fact. Over-index in a way, and over and over again, what I hear from news directors is that black people just want to see the crime. It's not true, but it's what we get, and it's what we get in our communities. And so to the extent that as we build campaigns, as we work to push back, we are part of this economic model here. And it's not just about shifting them and pushing back, but as Stacey said, building our own institutions and building our own news and building our own channels for getting information as well. And Stacey, we had here in Baltimore, uh, again, we had like uh, the police putting out a bulletin that gangs were mm -hmm. going to harm cops and they the actually purge. had the, 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 the purge, the purge, mm -hmm. the purge at, the, at the mall, and that had to all be walked back. Um, and, but it, it, that didn't stop the national news media uh, from reporting this, not just local, but national. Um, why do you think, um, everything you just mentioned on the, the podium, do the police have such a uh, close relationship, are willing to just believe anything the police you know, say, basically? Why, why do you believe they rely on the police so much in, in, uh, in, in coverage of communities of color? Well, I think because there is a, a huge social disconnect 
No. I mean, you have reporters and managing editors who are not connected to the communities that they cover. They are not getting out in those communities on the ground and developing relationships with people in the community. You have the, 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 the communities themselves don't trust a lot of these news organizations to tell the truth. Uh, I mean, Baltimore and the Washington Post have had their share of, you know, publishing uh, really bad stories about black folks and then the community shows up, you know, they're outside protesting uh, the coverage itself. So I think when you have, you know, uh, reporters who live outside of these communities, who live all the way out in the boondocks somewhere and they just come in and they tell these stories with no kind of cultural connection or understanding of how communities work, then that's then you 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 rely on the police as authorities. You don't see, you know, the people in the communities as authorities on, you know, or, or people who have, you know, masters and PhDs in their own experience and can be trusted to give you their own informed uh, understanding of what's going on. What a um what a um I, I know that you got a lot of press attention and we talked about this a little bit. Uh uh, you, with the column you wrote about Baltimore and the mom hitting her kid. And why don't you talk about that a little bit? And, and uh, not just that, the Dylan Roof, and how does the media try to construct an alternative narrative about black folk uh, during a time of crisis? So the Baltimore mom piece, I, I think the headline was, why is America celebrating the beating of a black child? You know, uh, at one point I regretted writing the piece because I got dragged for about three weeks on social media and Twitter, I had people calling my uh, work phone, threatening to do things. Some people told me I needed a whooping <laughs> for writing that piece. Um, I was deeply disturbed by, you know, the, the media narrative about Toya Graham, that she was a hero for coming out in the middle of a riot and, you know, basically knocking her son up against his head. And so, you know, the night that that happened, I predicted, I said, she's going to be a hero. Just watch. So, you know, Tuesday went by, Wednesday went by, she was all over the place. People were writing me because they know about my child advocacy work. And they said, aren't you going to write something? Aren't you going to say something? And at the time, I was really sick. I had bronchitis, so I sounded like the Godfather's twin sister. <laughs> I was like, no, surely somebody will see the wrongness of this. <laughs> And so it didn't happen. So finally the Washington Post editor called and said, hey, can you give us 1,200 words by the morning? And so I wrote this piece and I grounded it in history and what it meant to have a black woman, you know, charging after her son, cursing him out, pulling his mask off, and sort of depoliticizing him in that moment and doing the work of protecting the interests of the white police uh, structure by keeping her thug son in line. So I wrote this piece and, you know, it was clear to me that a lot of white people and black people have aligned philosophies around beating black children. And so they t the media used her without saying, this is a parent who is you know, in the backdrop of a race riot in a violent city with lots of crime who is operating out of fear, so much so that she thought that this kind of assault against her son was necessary. And that story did not get told. Right. Mashad, mm -hmm. uh, over, the, over the past year now, um, since uh, Ferguson in November, uh, the DA last November 2014 decided not to uh, indict uh, Darren Wilson um, and uprisings happening, has there been anything in coverage that 
can you point to coverage that you actually thought did a really good job of of of, of addressing issues of um, you know structural inequality in the media uh, that get into the root of of what Stacy's talking about, or are you are you uh, were you hopeful about um, were you happy uh, were there signs of good signs of a um, uh, good coverage or were you generally not happy with the coverage for the most part? So there were signs and stories here and there, but all but all sort of examples of how far we have to go. Right. right? The, 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 the few shining lights were um, just clear examples of the darkness and a clear examples of um, the challenging landscape that we sit inside of in terms of um, how stories come out. I was out of the country. I was in Europe. And that story was playing in the gym at like 6 a.m. in the morning when I was like working out, like seeing the story of, of, of the mother and the son and people responding to that overseas and how our images are exported and, and the ideas that people then come to this country or experience black people with sort of not just nationally but globally. Um, you know, we, after, after, um, you know, after we were in the, you know, were a little ways outside of Ferguson, um, we started to really um, get a sense of, of the challenges with local news coverage in general. We had had the issue in South Carolina, and we wanted to step back and really look at coverage as we've been having, as we started to have more and more problems through our media monitoring, through partners that we work with, and pushbacks. I felt like we were playing that game at the, the carnival whack-a-mole where you try to beat something down, something else pops up. There's nothing strategic about what we were sort of doing except for trying to take on opportunistic campaigns that allow us to tell a broader story about the challenges. So we stepped back and we did a, a report um, on New York local news. And we picked New York because it's the market with the most money. So we said they should be able to do it the best. And we also said that they are also setting the coverage for a lot of other places. A lot of local news reporters want to get to the big, the big uh, market, so they're setting the standard for how, for many of the networks. So we looked at the four major nightly news programs, um, local, and we um, monitored their crime coverage for six months. Some poor staff at Color of Change um, had to kind of over and over again track by race um, in four different categories, crime coverage. So anytime a suspect was named by race, and anytime a suspect wasn't named by race. And then we took that crime data and we compared it to NYPD arrest records. Arrest records that we already knew were skewed because of stop and frisk and broken windows policing, that we already knew were gonna tell us a higher story of black crime. We know that black and white folks on statistics um, use drugs at the same rate, but we know that our, our jails and our prisons are filled with black people for those offenses, not white folks. So we compared the two, we compared the numbers, and all four networks over-indexed on black crime, distorted black crime by 40 to 50%. Even after bad, so they were showing more black crime and they were all under-reporting the level of white crime. So we took this report and we went into the newsrooms with it and we were like, this is what you're doing. Um, and we are also, and here are the advertisers that we have relationships with, so we should have a conversation. <laughs> and we started to have conversations with the newsrooms. Some of them were sort of open and some of them were not. 
um, we started to have conversations that always started with, we're not racist. Um, we're like, well, so that's not the conversation we're here to have. We're having a conversation about whatever you're doing, whatever you think you are or don't think you are, that's fine. But each night you all are making decisions that on the aggregate are leading to this. So whether or not you want to have a conversation about whether you're a racist or not, you're actually doing news poorly. And you're giving, and you are not preparing your the people in your viewing audience to be good citizens, which is part of your job, to inform people about their community, to give them a path forward. You are telling them a story about who to be afraid of, who to view as, 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 um, as heroes, and we know over and over from, re from research the impact that has on decision makers, not just decision makers in courtrooms or schools, but for folks who are just trying to go rent a room in terms of sort of what that leads and the vicious cycle around implicit bias. We know the impact that has on young black people in particular, their view of themselves and their view of who they should be. And we know the impact that has in our conversations about race, the way it shuts down racial conversations, the way it doesn't create openings for white folks to be engaged in these conversations as well. All the different ways in which what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis impacts. So we started pushing them. We started having trainings. We've started to model for them what public campaigns might look like against them if they don't make changes. And we're continuing now to give them another chance with another six-month monitoring. And we'll be releasing another report. We're also going to be looking at a number of other cities, probably Baltimore, as part of that process, St. Louis, um, New Orleans, and a couple of other cities, um, with a look at how crime coverage how this is being done, and pushing news agencies to do better. It's one thing for reporters to say that we're not racist. It's another thing for them to say that, you know, these are the stories that we're getting or we're not making bad decisions. It's another thing to shine a spotlight up, but to shine the spotlight up with a campaign apparatus behind us. To say, hey, we're being reasonable and we're showing you what you're doing. Our next step will be mobilizing people to push back and hold you accountable. So let me... Uh, Let me, um, let me ask you another question, uh, Rashad, and, and uh, for you too, Stacey. Uh, so this is what uh, NPR TV critic Eric Diggins recently wrote for the Neiman Reports this past spring. Um, in my view, this is about the coverage of race and what's going on over the past year. In my view, too often, coverage of racial issues at mainstream news organizations is treated episodically, focused largely on exploding controversies and breaking news stories. Someone is dead or getting sued or has been arrested or has done something controversial, and media outlets are ready to track the fallout and stories almost guaranteed to rank at the top of their website's must-read list. But in my experience, this approach also segregates the topic of race, to of race to news, focus on conflict and controversy that polarizes audiences. Audience are, audiences are conditioned to see race as a hot-button topic, only worthy of the most blockbuster stories, making it tougher for journalists to tell subtler, more complex tales. What's your reaction to that, Shot? I think it's, I mean, I'm challenged because it's, it's a chicken or egg question, right. right? Is it like, are journalists more challenged versus we're in a, I think we are in a vicious cycle right. inside of news where, where something happens and it continues to replicate itself. What's, what, what works inside of news agencies, what gets people promoted, then gets replicated over and over again. What ends up then selling, people then continue to do more of, and we see it replicated over and over again in sort of this, this cycle that's, that's, never, that's never ending. And so, 
I agree with that, and I, and I feel at times, as an organization that has to get its stories in the news, we're oftentimes having to exploit controversy to ensure that we're able to move a narrative and force some sort of change. I do think that that is, the, what, what he's saying there is the key reason why we've stepped back in or, as an organization to think about how do we disrupt the delivery? Right. How do we disrupt um, the systems and the structures for how this is done so that we're not on this never-ending cycle of trying to push for something, trying to get something into the news because, and trying to frame it in a way that the news will cover, and then as a result, never quite seeing sort of radical change, but seeing you know, two steps forward, three steps backwards, you know, three steps forward, two steps backwards, but kind of constantly finding ourselves back in the same place. So, folks, definitely start lining up if you want to ask questions. Um, and Stacy, so that question is um, the, the microphone's here to the, to the left of me, uh, of the left of the stage. So, the question is like you're, you're treating news of race as basically entertainment to get ra- to get ratings, and it really inflames, but it doesn't address the systemic racism. What is your res- you know what is your yeah? I read that report when it came out right. this summer, and I agreed with the assessment. And um, you know, within the last newsroom that I worked in. Uh, that was often a complaint that I had that, you know, we covered higher education. So, you know, it seemed to be that the newspaper was, you know, interested in stories about affirmative action, you know, some Supreme Court case. And then we knew the comments would go off the, tra- off the chain whenever right. we had those sorts of things. But just to, you know, one of the things that I, I think is a problem is, is that when you have, uh, you know, an all-white newsroom, uh, again, they don't have context for diverse sources and so on. So I always made sure I diversified the people that I was talking to uh, so they didn't all look the same, that they came from regional schools or working-class backgrounds, you know, and so on and so forth. It always amazed me when other reporters would come to me and say, Stacy, I'm working on a story about such and such, and maybe something related to race, or maybe not, and they wanted to diversify their story. And they would say, um, could you give me some names of some you know, people of color to interview? And uh, like I was a, a walking Rolodex or something, right? <laughs> okay, let me find you some black people real quick. Hold on. And, you know, and sometimes I wanted to, I <laughs> seriously wanted to sit back one day and, and just go to someone and say, hey, Todd, I'm working on this story about, you know, STEM. Can you give me some white people to interview? You know, and so it really spoke, it speaks to what the questions are. It's like we only write, they, they're only able to write about these huge controversies rather than these, you know, sort of lower level type stories or features right. because they don't, they don't know anybody. They don't know people outside of their own network or their own class structure and so on. That's part of the problem. I would also argue that they're not, uh, they're not invested in, um, in, in, in coverage that actually helps to liberate communities. Yes, yeah. yes, and I think that's huge too. I, I recall uh, last year we did a package on, it was called Black Men in STEM. And so there were, you know, just a whole issue about black males. And, and so I, I sat in a diversity supplement meeting, um, and uh, I said, you know, I'd like for us to tell the stories of black men who actually made it. Right. So what, what helped them rather than, oh, these are the poor statistics and, and so on and so forth. And we actually had, we had to shut down the comments because the readers you know, we're taken aback by stories of black men actually being successful. Right. Great. And, and just, and just right. say, it's not just about being invested. We have to incentivize 
news media. They're a business. At the end of the day, they are a business. They are there to make a profit. And that doesn't mean that people don't go inside to do the right thing. It doesn't mean that folks don't go inside of all different types of structure. We're working on police reform right now. It does not mean that po all police officers are bad. It doesn't mean that people don't go into policing to, to serve their community. It means that the structure is broken. And unless you create new incentives for how the structure works, we will continue to have the same results. Hi, ma'am. How you doing? Hi. Um, Stacey, this comment's for you, but do you have your opening um, remarks or speech, do you have that somewhere? I was doing the same thing. Because we got to post it up. That was, I mean, there yeah. wasn't a part of that where I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is so true. And exactly. I mean, for the people who could listen to it all and believe it, I'd like to see them say it. But then for the ones who can't, I'd like to start planting those seeds. So is that somewhere? Like, do I need to spend all day at work tomorrow looking for it? Are uh, you going to, is it going to post it? I wrote it on my laptop about 30 minutes before getting here. <laughs> That's the truth. Pretty good. Um, I right? guess we could find a way, it, you right? know, find a post way. It, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, post it. Yeah. Exactly. We'll have the, uh, we'll post the audio yeah. from tonight, <clears throat> probably within a few days. And so we'll make sure to post that. Well, we'll talk well, with like, can, you, can that be written somewhere? Like, that's a whole lot of chances, like, like whatever you wrote on your laptop. Yes, yes. I, I can email it to whomever. Yeah, we'll yeah. find a way to get that out. I, I was thinking the same thing. How you doing? Uh, my name is Davon Love. I'm with a local uh, advocacy organization called Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, and I wanted to just make a um, comment and a question. The first is um, your comments have really confirmed a lot of the struggles that we have and other organizations like ours have had in terms of getting substantive mainstream corporate media coverage of people most directly affected by issues of racism and white supremacy, organizing and creating institutions that are autonomous, that don't rely the benevolence of white folks and their you know, pity and, and the like um, in order to get the kind of coverage we need. Um, and so my comment is I would like to figure out a way to work with you all to help us in Baltimore. I think the media landscape needs to be shifted given that the trials are about to start. Um, we have a mayoral election. Um, this year's General Assembly will be very important. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, my question. Um, so I have, a, I have a theory, and based on your expertise, I want to get your, your commentary on this. So police brutality is not something that's new. You know, it's something that's been happening for a while. My theory is, is that mainstream corporate media has figured out a formula to use black death in the context of cable network news in order to get viewership to draw people into the narrative but not necessarily have a substantive concern for the livelihood of black people. And I think, unfortunately, people have been tricked into thinking that the media coverage is some kind of groundbreaking phenomena as it relates to movement building, as opposed to a media manipulation that is attempting to absorb the issues of black folks for the purposes of using our issues to reaffirm the, the, the status quo. Um, and there are folks that get frustrated, I think, with that um, observation, but I'm curious to hear what you all think about that. I think black um, death has become the new injustice porn. Hmm. Um, we see the videos of the oh. shootings over and over again. People circulate them on, you see it on Facebook. I've told people to stop tagging me on those things because it's traumatizing, you know? And, um, you know, like, you, you just see it alongside people posting 
lynching pictures and say, lest we forget. Well, we don't really need to look at the lynchings to know that this stuff is still going on. Um, and even our funerals, um, you know, televising the funeral of Trayvon Martin or Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and the Charleston victims as well. I mean, our churches are being used as a kind of activist theater uh, for these types of mo uh, moments. And, um, and we're seeing it over and over. We're not seeing this happen with other people. There was an artist in Detroit who restaged the murder scene of Mike Brown. And, you know, um, and they're, they're making money off of that and calling it being an ally. Um, so we're starting to see these trends of using black death to, you know, sort of create a ruse of, yes, we're really concerned about this stuff, but it's not really em empowering us at, at all. If anything, it's, it's traumatizing us. It's, it's horrible to see people using, you know, putting pictures of Trayvon's dead body or Mike Brown's dead on their, on their cover walls on Facebook and, you know, s circulating those types of things over and over again. Well, I'm still trying to figure out what it means and the, the profitability part of it. I, don't, I haven't been able to, you know, uh, sort of see the connection between that. But certainly it's part of a long tradition of, pub, you know, sort of making black death public and something that could be consumed for some other kind of psychological purposes. I also think, I also think it's very much rooted in capitalism. Mm -hmm. So 24 years ago, when that tape of Rodney King surfaced mm -hmm. being beaten, mm -hmm. someone had to tape it. Then they had to think about what they were going to do with it. Then they sent it to a couple of networks. They sat around rooms. They called LAPD first and had a conversation. Then it finally got released. The news media is now behind in sort of our, our, our capitalist structure where they have to stay on top of the news because it's being covered on social media. And so now they're racing and fighting to be first or to have something new or something on top of what's already traveling through our social media platforms. And so just as much as the social media world has allowed us to not have to rely on corporate filters to tell our story, not have to wait for CNN or ABC or whoever else to decide whether something is news in our communities. We can move that and, and, and it can reach a marketplace of ideas and people can decide. It's also at the same time created this space where, where now when we see this information that previously may not have reached the marketplace start to trend, start to move, we are seeing corporate entities do what corporate entities do, figure out how to make money. That's what corporations exist to do. Um, and, and to the extent that now they've got to figure out how to compete in this environment, we're going to see more and more of these stories until people don't want to see it and tune out, and it no longer makes money. And so as long as it, it allows for ratings, as long as, long as these stories leading at the top of the news gets more people to stay tuned after the, at 10.50, when 10.59 turns into 11 o'clock, as long as more people stay tuned, when that first thing, we will see more and more and more of it as news agencies are trying to compete with social platforms, are trying to compete with other news, other ways that we're getting news and other forms that we're getting our information. Great, thank you. Yes, sir. Um, so I don't really, I I, I don't really have a question. Um, I just want to sure. engage with you guys on the, on the issue that you brought up. I really love this idea of cosmetic diversity that you uh, uh, brought up, Stacy. And I was just thinking about ways of solving cosmetic diversity. Because it's not just, it seems to me, right, 
it's not just about having people with black skin in the newsroom, like more people with black, more black people doesn't necessarily equate to uh, less cosmetic diversity. Uh, so I was just curious about how we could go about addressing cosmetic diversity. And I think along the line, along those lines, I was thinking about Rashad's interest in crime and uh, crime reporting and kind of racism in crime reporting. And it seems to me that one of the issues is that the very ways in which we define crime are themselves racially biased, right? Mm -hmm. So that the definitions of crime themselves perpetuate white supremacy and the racial status quo. So how do we go about solving uh, these larger racial justice? I and mean, how do you solve that issue when, you know, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, these folks just want to do their job. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they're not interested in, in absorbing a racial justice framework, right? So I don't know. I just kind of wanted to talk about uh, cosmetic diversity, how to go about solving it, especially as it relates to crime reporting. I think what Rashad has been talking about this evening, getting into the newsrooms, you know, uh, you know, forcing the news managers, the gatekeepers to look at what they're doing. Because a lot of times they, you know, their definition of, you know, being racist is like, you know, going home and putting on a sheet, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and they don't understand that the relationship between white privilege and how it helps to sustain and perpetuate larger, more sinister forms of, uh, of, of racism. Yeah. So white privilege means when you have a newsroom where all the editors are white. Yeah. And so what gets determined to be newsworthy is processed through that lens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, or how your journalists of color are you know, supposed to act or be professional in the newsroom. Um, or respond when under attack, yeah. you know, those, those sorts of things. And then, you know, are you making a welcoming environment for your, your, your journalists of color? Uh, you know, it's walking into a newsroom after staying up until 2 or 3 in the morning watching the riots in Ferguson or in Baltimore, and you, you walk in the newsroom, and Todd is like, good morning, Stace, how you doing? And I'm just like, I just watch black people, you know, get, you know, fired on and beaten the streets and and there's no sort of safe space that's created within the newsroom uh it's being open to your journalists of color who are saying mm -mm, don't do that don't don't put you don't want to publish that picture right there and you do it anyway and then the whole community is mad and it's like i told you so so you know it's listening it's creating those environments it's diversifying your staff not just along in terms of color but class background, so these people who have, you know, close experiences to the folks who are, are, are living in those communities. But I think Rashad gave you an, ex, ex, some excellent examples of how you can sort of, you know, break into the cosmetic diversity. And I think some of the cosmetic diversity is just doing so much damage. Having, um, having the news that we are seeing filtered through black voices, black faces or brown faces each night, sends a message to people that it's fair and that it's accurate. The same way that you see all the law and order shows have black judges, like there's that many black judges, right? Like there's just not, it's not. I mean like, you know, and, 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 and we, but we see, we see black folks used as symbols in these situations on whether it's on the crime shows as, as judges and, the, and that if you have a black woman behind the bench that somehow what's being said and what's being done is fair and same thing behind the news desk. And we see that over and over again that that type of, that that type of symbolism is used to coddle 
and give the viewing audience this idea that what they're seeing is fair and real and accurate. And that's why disruption is, has to be so important in these situations. You know, I'm just going to add real quick, you know, um, uh, Stacy and, and Rashad talking about the system itself is, 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 is broken. And, you know, the first black newspaper in this country was Freedom's Journal in 1827. And they said in the first edition, the reason why they founded the paper, they said, we wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us. But in the press and the pulpit, we have suffered much from being incorrectly represented. That's why they found the paper for. And that's 200 years later, and we're still saying the same thing, right? And we don't own radio stations, TV stations. We don't own uh, the ability to uh, communicate freely without any corporate gate, without any gatekeepers who are not people of color. Now, you can have owners of color who are not going to do very well by their communities as well, but we, we don't even have like a critical mass. And so this is why the internet, if I can just throw it to Rashad real quick, um, whenever technology comes along, it creates a new media industry, whether it's radio, television, cable, right? And the government has to decide, do it allow the greatest number of voices to participate or does it turn over control of the industry to the hands of a few? And historically, whether it's radio, CBS, and NBC, and it became the first TV owners and the cable owners, people of color were not, um, uh, people of color were not in line at the time because of racism to get those licenses. So those folks built the wealth to buy the next media platform. And now we have Comcast owning like basically everything, right? In this city, there was black radio clubs formed in 1916, 1970 to teach folks in the black community how to broadcast their voice, right? And yet when it came time to get these licenses, we didn't get anything. So, um, Rashad, if you could talk to the importance of, the, of an open internet, why Color of Change is fighting for this platform right now um, to keep it open and free. We can talk about that for a brief second. I mean, in, in free press, um, Joe's being modest, but Joe was such a leader in the fight to save um, an open internet um, from, his, from his work at free press. But the idea of an open internet is that all information travels at the same speed, that internet providers can't treat our internet um, like our cable companies, they can't treat it like cable TV, where you have different packages. They can't treat some information like it's traveling fast or slow. They can't block different information. That, that the power of our ideas is what allows for something to move quickly and for people to see it. And that's why in this age where we don't own news that we need an open internet. For organizations like mine that started with a single email in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, an email that went to 1,000 people that said, we believe Kanye was right. And, um, and um, we're not saying that today about a lot of things. But at the time, we believed Kanye was right. Um, and, and we wanted people to stand with, with our organization. A thousand people turned into 1.3 million people that's been able to push back against major institutions. We've never been able to do that without an open internet. So, you know, that type of um, power in our hands is, is great, but there were so many forces trying to stop that, mainly big telecom companies. MSNBC, which is a network that I'm on often, booked me three different times to talk about net neutrality, each time about a couple of hours before they cut the segment. Um, why? Because they're owned by Comcast, which was fighting net neutrality. So relying on platforms that we even think are sort of on our side, um, if we can't speak with an unfiltered voice, and that's also just not net neutrality. It's also my canary in the mind to folks in the room about Twitter and Facebook. These are companies that are owned in Silicon Valley. They're corporations that um, don't employ black people. 
Twitter employs 2% black people. Um, When we ran a campaign against Twitter and and said, release your numbers, they released it and it said 2%. And then we had to dig in deeper and we found out that they were were including cafeteria workers, bus drivers, and and security guards who were all fighting for a living wage. and they said it was because of STEM, and then we dug a little bit deeper and said, wow, this is not just a math and science problem. Only 20% of your jobs are STEM jobs. Most of them are like HR or marketing or legal or all these other places where you can probably find someone in Oakland, which is like 30 miles away, to work in your um, office. So these are all the questions of how, of how much do we put all of our faith in a, in a platform like Twitter it's not going to get us free. The minute we get close to free, Twitter is not going to be there for us. So the idea of us using these platforms to build our own voice, to use our own voices unfiltered, is going to be incredibly important for us as we build movements that make sure all of our voices are heard. Sir. Uh, good evening. I just have uh, two very short questions, and I need the audience help on the first one. Would everybody who read the printed version of the Baltimore Sun today raise your hand? The printed paper version of the Baltimore Sun, raise your hand. You see what has happened, I believe, that the culture has changed. And there's a different way we've got to approach this. When I was a young man, Amos and Andy was on television. And there was a major campaign raised against that particular form. We're allowing Amos and Andes to be on TV right now and portraying us in the wrong manner. So we have got to put a lot of emphasis on our people who are portraying us on TV. I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you all. I have a million questions, but I'm going to try to squeeze it down. Um, I wanted to ask you all, with the movement towards social media and seeing how powerful and how quickly things spread, um, with the short attention span that's come with that, and also the way you know, people are killed, and then the next moment another story is released as a distraction, and everybody just... Their, their attention is diverted in another direction. Um, what solutions or what words, thoughts do you all have with regards to um, the challenges that come with the selective rememory and short attention of span of social media culture? Um, another question was color of change um, with accountability with not just corporate sponsors, but also have you guys reached out for accountability for um, celebrity or entertainers or um, people who have have impact, like global impact or just impact the way people of color are um, are portrayed? And there's just generally anything that you all can offer to help us deal with the trauma of not just with the media but like in day-to-day interactions of the lack of empathy specifically towards the trauma of black Americans and our experience or just 
black and brown people of color, right. the lack of empathy and concern and the shift of the conversation to being about, to not being on the person receiving the trauma, but rather being on, I'm not, dealing with white people feeling attacked by the discussion of white racism. Any thoughts you have about okay. managing that? So, to jump in, I mean, I think the thing around your, to your question around presence to power, I mean, to your question, I, I answered your first question with not mistaking presence on social media, things trending for power. And it's such, a, it's such an important thing that I remind everyone who comes and works at Color of Change. We, I think I'm a, a, a broken record um, over and over again. I'm like sort of like want to apologize to old bosses that were broken records to me at times. Um, but we can mistake trending or having our information on the front pages or the daily blip and people paying attention as that we're building power, that we're organizing, that we're moving systems. And it is about building campaigns that are long lasting. And to the sort of and to trans to transition that to the point around celebrity and celebrity culture, it's why we've been moving in our work into in Hollywood, not just at running campaigns to force maybe things off the air, um, and we've done that a couple of times, but to also get inside the writers' rooms. And we've been working inside the writers' rooms of a number of shows, um, basically to pitch our own storylines and work with creatives on storylines. It's work that I did prior to coming to Color of Change at GLAAD, and saw the power of how we were able to transform the way that LGBT people were covered in Hollywood for you know, the, my six years there from what we were seeing on TV to when I left in New York, in New York State was marrying couples. Um, just the transition in terms of coverage of LGBT people and being in the room as the president of Fox who had failed our network responsibility index for a number of years would show us the TV show Glee and say, we're not gonna fail next year. I thought Glee was horrible. But I will say, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to last. All I have to say, we're working to, to do that now. Part of that is about, is about having a powerful stick that, that, that holds networks accountable, that says if you don't do it right, but also having the carrot of saying, we'll work with you. We'll bring real stories into your newsroom. We'll help you better understand how to tell these stories. We'll give you, and then we'll also push and promote and share. And so from my perspective, um, we're doing a mix of both, and that's, how we think about sort of long-term engagement, long-term campaigns, about having the accountability work on the outside, but doing the long-term work of shifting institutions to do better long-term. Great. We only have time for one last question, okay. I was told. I just have so, just so a quick question. Sure. I have uh, been a political and politic, political junkie for all my life, but I have a question that was happening. When we have, and this is kind of off the topic, but it is for media, when we have a, a police involved killing. Immediately, either that same day or immediately after, they say how many police officers have been killed in the United States. They never specify who the perpetrators are. They just automatically, when a black person's killed, this comes up how many police officers have been killed, like a comparison. They never specify out of this 168 or 200 people, police officers, that have been either killed or maimed, how many people that were perpetrators were people of color? And I believe that that's something that's never addressed. It's just shot out there that this many police officers have been killed. When you have a 12-year-old black child killed, then all of a sudden 168 police officers have been killed in the United States. 
They never specify that the perpetrators were peoples of color, but automatically it's assumed that that's who these people were. And I really don't believe that most of them, I don't know if any data's been collected, most of the police involved shootings probably are not, the perpetrators probably are not people of color. And I would like, if anybody's doing any data on that, yeah, I, I, I think people are just, with, the, with these recent police killings, there have been, you know, a number of reports in the New York Times and others where folks were, like, scratching their heads and saying, we don't actually know how many people in the United States are killed by police officers each year. The, the Justice Department doesn't keep those numbers. So, but you see um, The Guardian and also The Washington Post recently did this uh, interactive. You can actually go on. I think The Guardian's is much better. But you can see... Um, they actually us. Uh, they actually built off of our map. Oh, see, that's um, why. They gave us that's credit, though, better. but they built off our map. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. yes. And so you can go, you can search by age, you can search by mm -hmm. victim, gender, whether the person was armed or not, uh, and so on. It's very comprehensive. And, um, and so I think what you're asking is probably a question that hasn't been asked. And it could be the next layer, I think, that you guys should, hint, hint, um, take that on, um, and sort of ask this very, very important question. So I think people are just starting, because, again, it's the technology and digital reporting is starting to evolve where we can, you know, answer those types of questions that you're bringing up. I mean, we, we, I mean, this goes back to your point around our newsrooms being diverse. We don't ask the right, we don't have the right people in the room, so the right questions are not asked, and then we don't get the right answers. Yep. And I met with the Justice Department on Wednesday, and we specifically brought our demand once again around a federal database. We've delivered over 900,000 petitions to the White House around a federal database. We've produced our own database called Killed by Cops, um, and uh, which the Guardian sort of took and built up, uh, uh, you know, they have a lot more money, so they built a, something that was, was really fantastic in terms of an interactive map. But um, you know, not just about killed by cops, but some of the statistics that we learned, we actually have data. One data point is that overwhelmingly, the, the number of black folks killed by cops were unarmed versus white folks killed by cops. These are just examples of some of the things we learn when we have data, but it's also an example of a newspaper outside of the United States that was asking a different set of questions that had a different set of standards about how their media should be run. So it does bring us back to this question about media and having a free press in this country that does its job. You know, uh, can I just make one last comment? Um, just. Uh I want to read this quote. I want to read this quote about Dr. King said about the media, basically, uh, in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos of Community. You know, King is often co-opted in, in the media um, uh, if, in, in the name of respectability politics. But this is what he said in 1967, right, that dealt with the media and the progressive left, let's say, um, that came out uh, that were against the killing of, of, of and, and uh, the killing of black folks in, in the South and in the, in the, the, the effort to not desegregate society. And, he, and the TV camera showed up there um, filming that stuff, right? So he says here, the outraged white citizen had been sincere when he snatched the whips from the Southern sheriffs and forbade them more cruelties. But when this was to a degree accomplished, the emotions that had momentarily inflamed him melted away. White Americans left the Negro on the ground and devastating numbers walked off with the aggressor. It appeared that the white segregationist and an ordinary white citizen had more in common with one another than either had with the Negro. 
When Negroes looked at a second phase, the realization of equality, they found that many of their white allies had quietly disappeared. The Negroes of America had taken the president, the press, and the pulpit at their word when they spoke of broad terms of freedom and justice. But the absence of brutality and evil is not the presence of justice. To stay murder is not the same thing as to ordain brotherhood. The word was broken and the free-running expectation of the Negro crashed into the stone walls of white resistance. The result was havoc. And so while we see the presence of more people of color and the, the issue of white supremacy being talked more with, about the media and, and appearing on TV and all these cameras focusing in on, on police brutality, I'm just afraid um, that they're going to go away again and that they're, not, that they're really not invested uh, for true liberation and, and justice for, for the black community or other communities of color. So that's Dr. King. It still mirrors, what, it still mirrors the challenges we have today that uh, those who uh, say they're with us um, once the, uh, they're against the killing of black bodies, let's say, the, the media, they say, of course they're going to say we're against that, but they're not truly into uh, making sure that the, uh, the plight of black folks and the, uh, the structural inequality faced every day is covered and changed. They're not going to challenge that. So that's what Stacy mentioned in the beginning. So thanks a lot. Thanks for being here. We'll talk some more after this. Come up to see you. Well, thank you very much for being here. Uh, Joe uh, uh, initially challenged us to focus on solutions. So some of you here are in the newsroom or in editorial boards, and others of us are outside. But I think there's a lot of work for us all to do. And I also want to thank all of our panelists uh, so much for being with us. So Stacy and Rashad and our moderator. And I hope you all will come back here on October 15th. Um, at that time, we're going to have Ajin Poo here and Gustavo Torres, who will talk to us about some of the um, problems and challenges we have in protecting people who are day workers and domestic workers. So I hope you'll be here with us. Thank you.